how do you want to be remembered? I mean, if you could choose any way for people to remember you after you passed away, after you died, what would you want them to do? How do you want to be remembered? As I was thinking about this question this week, I found a couple crazy stories that I wanted to share with you. The first one was from a guy named Solomon Sandburn. Solomon Sandburn, he was a, uh, a Boston hat maker who died in 1871. And like many people do, he donated his body over to science to be used. But he had one stipulation in his will. He wanted his skin to be stretched over two drums, and he wanted his best friend to play those two drums on June 17th every single year at Bunker Hill to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. Can't make that up. <laughs> another, another crazy story, you've probably heard of this guy, Napoleon Bonaparte, the French revolutionary uh, leader, and he wanted, when he died, he wanted his hair to be shaved off, and then he wanted that sent in little batches to each one of his friends, and that's what actually happened uh, when he died. That's how he wanted to be remembered. That's not for me, but, you know, to each his own. How would you want to be remembered after you died? If it, was for, it was, if it was me, I'd want something like, just play a basketball game in my honor, just play a pickleball game in my honor, something like that, just so you can remember that I like, like doing activities like that. But what about Jesus? I mean, what about Jesus, the king of the world, the king of the universe? He could choose any possible way to be remembered, and Jesus chose a meal. Jesus chose a supper to remind us of his death. And he could remind us of his life, he could have reminded us of his teaching, he could have reminded us of his miracles, but instead he chose to remind us of his death with a supper. And so every week here at Berlin Christian Church, we partake in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Other faith backgrounds call it the Eucharist or the Mass, where we come together in this meal time to remind ourselves of Jesus' death. And we hear about this in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also from Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so what I want to do is we're going to spend most of our time looking at Luke's passage and a little bit at 1 Corinthians. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to the Gospel of Luke. That'll be about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. We're going to start in Luke chapter 22, verse 13. And what's going on here is that we are at the last day of Jesus's life, and he's up in an upper room with his, fine, with his disciples, giving them his final instructions. He's even up there with the one who's going to betray him, Judas, and listen to what happens in the gospel of Luke. It tells us this, they left, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. Jesus had told them to go prepare for this feast, for this meal that they were going to have. So they prepared the Passover, and when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples, they reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out. 
for you. Jesus, he wanted us to remember him by having a meal to remind us of his death. And if you look at the early church and you look at the church for the past 2,000 years, we have been prioritizing this meal. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people, they give their lives to Jesus and are baptized. And we're told this is what they do next, these new followers of Jesus. It says this in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, so to God's word and to fellowship, which just means community with one another, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And many scholars say that that breaking of bread, even though it was a bigger meal than what we do today, that breaking of bread is this communion moment to remind them of Jesus' death. If you fast forward years into the book of Acts and you get to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it tells us this. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Don't miss that. You guys are lucky. I'm not going to be up here until midnight. I have about uh, maybe 20 more minutes, but not 13 more hours. So. But what it says here is that on the first day of the week, maybe on Saturday, Saturday, maybe on Sunday, they came together to break bread, to have a meal together, to remember Jesus' death, and so that's what we do here as well at Berlin Christian Church. Every day on the first, every week on the first day of the week, we take communion together because we see in the example of the early church that they prioritized this Lord's Supper, this communion moment. And it's not only in the Bible, but also if you look at the early church in, in the first 100 or 200 ADs, what you'll find is that uh, there are a lot of writings against Christians that accuse them of three main things. The first accusation against Christians is that they're atheists because they only believe in one God while everybody else around them believed in many. Their second accusation was that they were incestuous, that they practiced incest, because they said they were one big family, so that makes sense. And then accusation number three is that they were cannibals, because they said that they were eating the body of someone and drinking the blood of someone. And so from the outside looking in, you can see how that looks like cannibalism. I mean, if you just hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse uh, 53, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. If you're on the outside looking in, you'd say, That sounds a lot like a cannibal. And so from the very beginning, Christians have always prioritized this moment, this communion moment, this Lord's Supper moment. But why? Why have we done so? Why has it been such a priority for the church? And so today, I just, we could go a lot of different ways talking about the Lord's Supper. I just want to talk about three ways, three words, three reasons why we prioritize the Lord's Supper. The three words are this, the Lord's Supper it reminds us, it unites us, and it empowers us. And I want to begin by the Lord's Supper, it reminds us. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Look back at Luke's account with me, Luke chapter 22, verse 17 through 19. It says this, after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a reminder of me. This act of eating the bread and drinking the juice is supposed to remind us of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and what Jesus is doing here at this meal. And he's taking a symbol that the Jewish people already had, the Passover lamb, and he's transforming it. He's giving it a new meaning. You might have missed it, but in verse 13, it tells us that today was the Passover. And the Jewish people, they would celebrate the Passover every single year to remind them of God's deliverance from the Egyptian people. We talked about it a little bit uh, last week. But in this moment, the, the, Egyptian, or the Egyptians were oppressing the Israelites. And any time they complained and said, hey, we cannot keep up with the work, the Egyptian pharaoh, he would make them work harder and harder and harder. And so their cries were heard from God, and God was going to deliver them. And so God raised up a prophet, Moses, to go to Pharaoh. And nine different times, Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And every time, Pharaoh says, no way, dude, this is free labor. And so as an act of judgment, every single time, God sends a plague to get the Egyptians to release the Israelites, but they won't do it. And so finally, the tenth plague comes, and God says, you know what, I'm tired of this. And so he tells the Israelites, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on your doorpost. Because I am going to send an angel of death and it's going to kill the firstborn son and firstborn of every animal. And so that's exactly what the Israelites do. They listen to God, they slaughter lambs, and they put the blood over the door frames. And when the angel of death comes to their house, it passed over, hence the name Passover. It passed over and the Israelites were slaved. Not so the Egyptians. And Pharaoh, he even lost his firstborn son, the one who was going to be the rightful heir to the throne. And finally, Pharaoh has enough, and he says, get out of my presence. I don't want to see you guys anymore. Just get out of here. And so the Israelites, in this Passover, they get to experience freedom, and they are going on their way. It says 600,000 of them. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. He said, they are not going to get away with this. And so Pharaoh, he gets 600 of his best chariots. And so there's thousands and thousands, possibly 10,000s of his best warriors. And they begin to chase the Israelites. He's going to wipe them out. And they get to the point, the Israelites get to the point where right in front of them is the Red Sea that is impassable. And behind them is the Egyptian army that's going to kill them. And they think, we are doomed. And God does the impossible. He splits the Red Sea, and he allows the Israelites to walk through. I'm guessing they probably ran through because they were a little scared, but they walked through the Red Sea and made it all the way out on the other side, and the Egyptian army was chasing after them. But when the last Israelite took his step onto the shore, God made the water go back to the way it was. And the Egyptian evil was destroyed in that moment, and God's people were delivered from their slavery. And so every year, the Israelites, they were to remember this Passover with a meal, the Passover meal, and every year they were to slaughter a lamb to remind them of what God had done for them. 
And this couldn't be just any lamb. This had to be a perfect, spotless, without blemish lamb. And they would end up eating the lamb. And in this meal, Jesus is saying, that lamb is me. I am the spotless lamb that was sacrificed for you. And it's not freedom from the Egyptians. This is freedom from your two greatest enemies. Freedom from sin. And freedom from death. This communion moment is to be an image from the freedom of sin and death. And if you actually read the Gospel of Matthew's account, he says that my, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This meal, it reminds us of the Gospel. And so every time that we come to this moment together... We're reminded of God's radical love for us so that we don't have to live in our sin anymore. We don't have to live in our punishment anymore. Jesus has willingly taken that upon himself so that we can have freedom. So that no matter what your week was like, no matter what kind of disease is raging on, no matter what kind of diagnosis you have received, no matter how dire the situation seems, there's hope. Because our king has died for us and resurrected from the grave, which means for you and me, resurrection is just around the corner. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and his radical love for us. As I was preparing for the sermon this week, I I ran across a statistic that says that 85% of people struggle with self-worth. 85%. 5% of people. Now, I haven't taken a math class in about 10 years, but I know that's a lot of people. I know there are a lot of us that when we look in the mirror, we don't like what we see. Or there are a lot of us when we think about our past, we're ashamed. And we don't feel like we have any self-worth. But here's what I want to tell you, is that the value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. An iPhone is only worth $1,000 if you're willing to pay for it. A gallon of gas is only worth the $14 or whatever it is right now if you're willing to pay for it. And Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you are worth dying for. That's how much you mean to me. And so every time we come to this communion moment, we are reminded of that radical love that Jesus says we are worth dying for. The Lord's Supper, it reminds us of the gospel. But secondly, the Lord's Supper unites us together. It unites us together. And this is probably the most ironic statement that I'm going to make in this entire sermon because for thousands of years, The issue of communion or the Lord's Supper has been more debated by Christians than any other topic. I remember when I was in my first year of college, I was going to Independence Community College in Kansas. And believe it or not, I was in the choir there. There's a picture right here of when I was in that choir. Hopefully you can't uh, see me in there. Go ahead and change the slide. I don't want it up there anymore. Uh, But anyways, we had the gift of going to New York City to, to sing. And so that was such a great time. I got to go to Yankee Stadium. I got to see Lion King on Broadway. I got to go to the Statue of Liberty. It was absolutely awesome. But before we did any of those things, we went to this church, 
St. Paul's Catholic Cathedral. There's a picture right there. It is just absolutely beautiful. The acoustics in there are wonderful. And when you're in there, man, you just want to worship. You just know there's a transcendent God. It just makes you feel like you're in a holier place, like God's presence is there. And so it was so cool we got to sing there. And so uh, before we started singing, they said, how many of you want to just come take communion? I was like, oh, that's cool. This is a really cool place to take communion. So I got in line with about a half dozen other people. And while I'm in line, one of my best buddies, he looks at me with like this really weird, like, what are you doing look? I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, what are you doing in this line? So while I'm taking communion, I come from a, a, a background, Episcopal background for 12 years of my life. I went to an Episcopal church and, and we took communion every Sunday and it was like the highlight of the service. And, and so I was like, I'm taking communion. And he looked at me and said, you can't. You're not Catholic. And I went, oh, you're probably right. Well, I was too far into it. <laughs> I was too far into line. So I went ahead and I took communion and it divided us for the rest of the week. He was so mad about that moment that he hardly talked to me the rest of the week. And this moment that was supposed to be a moment of unity, of uniting us as the body of Christ, made him so mad that he wouldn't talk to me. And what's crazy is more Christians have killed other Christians over this issue than any other. It's something that we have fought about from the beginning. People have thought about whether or not uh, that Jesus is truly present in the bread and the wine. Or maybe he's like kind of present in the bread or the wine and kind of not. Or, or maybe he's just not present, but it's more of a symbol. We fought about uh, whether or not we should take open communion, which is what we practice here at Berlin Christian Church, where uh, communion is open to any believer in Jesus. It doesn't matter your denominational background. Whereas other people say, no, you have to have closed communion, which is what I experienced with my buddy. Closed communion, you have to believe these specific things. You have to be a part of my denomination, otherwise you can't. We even fight about the name. Is it the Lord's Supper? Is it the Eucharist? Is it the Mass? Is it communion? And while I'm not saying these things don't matter, what I am saying is when we fight over these things, we end up missing the point of communion, which is to unite us together. This is supposed to be an act of unity. And what I find important is that Jesus, when he is in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he's telling the disciples all the commands for what to do for, for this meal, he always uses the plural. He never uses a singular word. He's always using the plural. It's like he's from Texas or something. He's like, y'all do this. Y'all do that. Y'all do this. Y'all do that. Because this is something that we are supposed to do together. When we come to the Lord's Supper, this is supposed to be our family table. And that's why Paul is so upset in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's so mad at this church because when they would take communion, it was probably more like a full meal, not just this one moment. And what they were doing is they were treating the rich Christians like first class, like VIP status. So they had this whole room with just food all over the place. And then the poor Christians were getting nothing. And Paul was so mad about this. He was ripping them up so much so that he said, hey, you're taking communion in such an unworthy manner that some of you are dying and others of you are getting sick. You need to read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But then at the end, here's what he tells them. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. He says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat 
together. The Lord's Supper should unite us together. And here at this family table, we all eat together. And here at this family table, we all receive the same thing. How many of you in here would say, uh, yeah, I'm a picky eater. Go ahead and raise your hand. How many of you are picky eaters? Yeah, there's more of you out there. I guarantee you that. But So, growing up, I was more of a picky eater. Uh, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter what we were eating. We all received the same thing. So if it was tuna casserole, you still got it. If it was something delicious like a steak, you still got it. And we had a three-bite rule in the Hinnon family. You had to eat three bites of every single thing on your plate. Otherwise, you weren't dismissed. So I had a lot of choking down stuff growing up. But the point is, we all received the same thing at our family table. And the same thing is true here at the communion table. We all receive the same thing. And here at this table, no matter what your week was like, no matter what your past is like, no matter if you're a prostitute or a preacher, here at this table, we all receive the same thing. We receive Christ's mercy. We receive Christ's grace. We receive Christ's forgiveness, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus, when we look at his life and what he does in his life, a lot of the time he is hanging out and eating with the down and outs, the social ostracized, the outsiders, the prostitutes, and the sinners. And this gets other religious leaders' attention, and they start attacking Jesus about it. But listen to what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When we come to this table together, it is for everyone. And every single one of us, we come recognizing that we are sick. Recognizing that we need healing. And we receive it from the only person who has the cure, Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper, it matters because it unites us. And lastly, the Lord's Supper matters because it empowers us. It empowers us to live out Jesus' mission every single day of every single week. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says, it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation. That's an important word. That participation is the word koinonia. If you remember back at Acts chapter 2 where it said, all the believers were one in fellowship. That's the same word. It means fellowship or partnership or sharing. So it says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Here's what I think Paul is trying to get us to know. Number one, that the Lord's Supper is meant to unite us. Right? You saw that? We are all one together. We all share in the one loaf. But secondly, I think what he's trying to get us to do is tell us that the Lord's Supper empowers us to partner with Christ and to be Christ's body out in the world, to live out his great commission every single day. Another way to say it, I think, is when we eat the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ. When we eat 
the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ. And what I mean by that, when we come to this meal together and we eat it, it helps empower every single one of us to go be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we are. Unfortunately, this is a very hefty, weighty task. And, and the reality is, is we could never do this on our own. But I think it's important that both Luke and Paul, when they're telling us about this meal, they use this word, new covenant. Here's what Luke says in Luke 22, verse 20. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That word new there is key. Because the word covenant, it just means that there is a relationship, there's an agreement. And from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God is a relational God. He has a relationship with his people. But what Jesus is saying here is that in this Lord's Supper, a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship is being instituted. It's uh, prophesied about in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. You can read it there. But basically, what Jesus is saying is that with this new covenant, I am going to give you my personal presence in a unique way. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is not living, dwelling inside of people. But here in the New Testament, Jesus promises that His Holy Spirit will live inside of us and empower us to live out Jesus' mission. In John chapter 13, John doesn't tell us about the Lord's Supper specifically, like the communion moment, but he does tell us about the Last Supper. And he talks about it from uh, John chapter 13 all the way till John chapter 17. But here he says something about the new covenant. He says something about a new command. So we have a new covenant now and a new command. Here's what the new command is. John tells us this from the words of Jesus. Jesus says, A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the new command in the new covenant is to love one another like Jesus has loved us. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there are a lot of passages that talk about loving other people. So this doesn't really seem like a new command. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, this is a new kind of love that we are supposed to now model after Jesus. This is to be a cross-shaped love. I love what Kelvin Teemer, he's a, a pastor down in Georgia, he says that love, the best definition of love, is that it is a cross-shaped action. Love is a cross-shaped action because it ultimately gives glory to God, goes up, and it helps other people, goes out. Gives glory to God, goes up, and helps other people, it goes out. We are all called to this kind of love, sacrificial love, modeled after the example of Jesus. But once again, on our own, this is impossible. Maybe I'm all alone, but I have the most wonderful wife in the world, but still there are times when it's hard to love her. How much more so where Jesus says, we are to love our enemies. That is impossible on our own. That's not what we want. We want vengeance. In fact, uh, right after Jesus says this, he says, uh, here's this new commandment, disciples. Well, I actually know that when I'm going to go on the cross, you guys are just going to scatter and you're going to run away and you're going to listen to this at first. 
And then Peter steps up, the disciple Peter, he's always stepping up for Jesus, and he says, no, Jesus, I will never not follow you. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. And Jesus says, surely I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and that's exactly what happens. Peter denies him three times. But the very next three chapters, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, begins to tell us about the Holy Spirit begins to tell us how God's personal presence is going to live inside of each one of us so that we can witness to Jesus all out throughout the world. We are now going to be a people with his help who do even greater things than Jesus. That's in John chapter 16. We are going to do even greater things than Jesus. How is that possible? How could we love like this? Because God promises for those who trust him, that we will receive his Holy Spirit to empower us to live on mission. And I think in this moment together, where we come to this table, we are allowing the Lord's Supper to empower us, to reorient our lives, to quit living selfish lives. And for the rest of the week, six days, we begin living on mission for Jesus. And maybe we start straying about Saturday. But then we come here on Sunday again. And this meal, it reorients us to empower us to live Jesus' mission out in the world and to live for God's glory. One last story. Her name was Sister Mary. 30 years ago, this story happened. Sister Mary, she was uh, at the very end of her seminary training to be a Catholic nun. And she wasn't sure what she wanted to do with her life. And so she called Mother Teresa, yes, the Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India. And she said, Mother Teresa... I don't know what to do. Can I just come help you? She's like, sure. And so, so Sister Mary, she goes over to Calcutta, India, and what she sees there is Mother Teresa and other nuns with her. They are just helping the poor and the dying, those who are the down and outs, those who are needing the most help. They're helping them. And by the end of the summer, Sister Mary thinks, you know what, maybe I could be here longer and, and just stay with this legendary Mother Teresa. And so she told Mother Teresa, I just want to stay here. I just want to help you. But what Mother Teresa told her changed her life. Mother Teresa, she looked her in the eyes and she said this, I want you to go back to your neighborhood, find your poor, find your Calcutta. Go back home and find your Calcutta. I think in this moment where we come back to the communion table, God empowers us to find our Calcutta, to find the people in our lives that we can sacrificially love so that every single moment this week, if we see someone in need, we can sacrificially love them because this moment empowers us to live out the mission of Jesus. When we eat the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ. Let us be the body of Christ this week. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for, for how you let us remember you through a meal. Uh, here we have grape juice, and it's a little a square or circle of bread, and at times it can mean nothing to us, like we're just going through the motions. But help us, Lord, every single day, especially today, when we come to this moment, remind us of your love for us, Remind us that we are one big family in this divided world. 
And help us, Lord Jesus, to live out your love to everybody we come in contact with. I pray, Lord, for those who have never made that decision to follow you or surrender to you. I pray that this moment would be a meaningful moment where they come to you for the very first time and say, thank you for dying for me and for forgiving me. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. It's in your powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.